said it's our annual meeting, so I often kind of think through a, a sermon, just where we are, where we're going, kind of a sermon. And one of the things that's easy to think about is wanting to go back. You ever think about wanting to go back? You about wanting to go back to being a kid when my biggest decisions were, are we going to play street football after school or street basketball after school or street baseball after school? Or are we going to run in the woods? Like, th- those were our decisions. All right? I, I had a neighbor who, for whatever reason, his parents had an endless supply of soda. And so he wasn't supposed to give them out, but he'd crack the garage door like six inches and we'd call in, give me an orange, and these cans would come rolling out. And that, that was life, right? That was, that was what it was about. You know, I think about, wouldn't that be fun to go back to that? I think about it would be fun to go back to when I had all the ligaments in my knee that God gave me. Uh, it'd be nice to have those again. They're, they're not there anymore. Or um, last spring, we took a visit down to Grand Canyon University in Arizona, looking at it for my oldest, Lauren, and it just looked so fun. Like, there's just, it's sunny down there. There was volleyball courts everywhere and hammock things. I thought, I want to go back to college. I want to go here. Why didn't I go to Arizona for college? You know, when you come to Bellingham, they take you on a tour of Western in the spring and the fountains out, the sun's shining, and then you show up in the fall and they close the fountain and it's dark for six months. Like, wait, this wasn't the preview that I had when I visited, but... uh you just think, I want to go back to that. Oh, wouldn't that be fun to go back? You know, you go back to maybe a trip that you had. You think, oh, I want to go back to that trip. It was so nice. And you look at pictures. Look at that blue water. Or look at that fish I was holding or whatever your, your trips would be. You know, maybe sometimes you think, wouldn't it be nice to go back when there wasn't cell phones? You know, that it's beeping at you. And what did you do when someone called and they didn't get a hold of you? You just didn't do anything. You just waited till the next day, right? Your message will be on your desk. You don't have to call them right now. There was just, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to go back to 2019? We didn't have COVID. I feel like I preface conversations. Oh, well, this was before COVID, and so therefore, or you watch a movie with like a crowded restaurant, and you're like, oh, you can't do that. Like, oh, yeah, we used to all the time, right? That was normal. So you just think about going back, but then there's this reality. There is no going back, right? We can't go back in time. We can't go back to 2019. We can't go back to 1980. We can't go back to 1960. There's no going back, right? We just, time doesn't move that way. Life doesn't move that way. And so I was thinking of this. This might make some of you seasick, but this is uh, like driving... Um, look through the rearview mirror only. Just look through the rearview mirror. TT and I filmed this, right? Just try to watch the rearview mirror. Just, what's what's happening? That that's my bike in the back. It's not. I didn't run over a bicyclist, by the way. Uh, but as you're driving, if you're driving, looking out the rearview mirror, things are getting smaller, and you're going away from them. And if you're driving and you're only looking out the rearview mirror, you're eventually going to crash, right? Because you're not looking about what's in front of you, and you're not paying attention. The rearview mirror shows you what's behind you, but it's shrinking and it's fading. And when you're driving your car, the rearview mirror is little. The rearview mirror is little, and it gives you a reference point. But we don't drive looking through the rearview mirror the whole time. 
we look out the front windshield, right? When you're driving, you're going forward. The front window is huge, right? It's big. You have full view of everything. And the things that you're going towards are getting bigger, not smaller. And so you can see where you're going, and there's a destination, there's a direction. It's safer, you know, and you're looking ahead. TT did the filming. Now, I'm not filming while I'm driving, by the way. But uh, that's the reality. We have a very little rearview mirror that's a reference point. We know what's back there. There's good things. There's bad things. But they're shrinking, and they're getting smaller, and we can't focus on them. We need to look at what's in front of us, which is what we're approaching It's getting bigger, and that's the direction. So there's no going back. I'm not saying reminiscing isn't isn't a a good idea, but if we're only longing for what used to be, if we're only longing for the past, we're not going to make the future. We're we're not going to be living in what's coming up. So we need to be looking out the front window. What are we looking forward to? What's in front of us, not what's behind us? What's in the big window, not the little window? That's what we're looking at. And so today, what I want us to talk about on this annual meeting Sunday is that let's go all in as disciples of Jesus. That's what's in the big window. I want to be a full-in disciple, a disciple we might say an apprentice or a learner. I want to be all in as a disciple of Jesus. I want more of Jesus directing my life, leading my life, directing our church, leading our church. I want more and more and more of what he wants for me in front of us. To go all in on that. That's what we want to talk about. That's what I want in the front view mirror of us as a church. All in as disciples of Jesus. How church was, how life was Two years ago, 50 years ago, it's in the rearview mirror, but what's in front of us is we want to live all in for Jesus. So I want to do a little bit of cultural commentary to help set the context for this. I've talked about some of these concepts before, but we just need to understand where we are in this moment of time so that we have context for going forward. So these are ideas I've gotten largely from a guy called Mark Sayers who's an Australian pastor and brilliant cultural thinker, and he's put these ideas together from other people. But we need to understand the cultural movements. So you have what's called the first culture. That's the pre-Christian culture. So the first culture is, there's still some of them out there, cultures that have not been impacted by Christianity. So they're cultures with many gods, many spirits, a lot of fear, you know, ancestral worship, spirit worship. You have to appease the gods and so on. So it's kind of the world is scary. It's filled with spirits. That's the first culture. That's a culture that's still encountered in some places today where the gospel has not reached it at all. That's considered a first culture. Then you get to second culture, which is culture that has been Christianized doesn't mean that it's completely Christian. Not everyone in that culture is Christian, but it's been Christianized. And this really began way, way, way back when uh, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, had some kind of spiritual experience. Whether he went all the way to being a Christian or not, I can't say. But Christianity, instead of being hunted down and eradicated in the Roman Empire, became the authorized religion of Rome, which spread into the whole Middle Ages And so we have words like Christendom, but it's basically a culture that is impacted by Christianity. 
Christianity is welcomed, its values are supported, it's generally understood, it has an honored place in society, it's respected. That's a Christianized culture. Not everyone in that culture is Christian, but it has a seat at the table, and the society genuinely functions uh, with Christian principles at its core. That dominated from Constantine. In Europe, maybe you'd say the Enlightenment began to be some of the cracking of that, when the world switched from a modern world to a postmodern world. It started in Europe first. It certainly moved here. And we now find ourselves in the third culture, which is called post-Christian culture. This is not like we might. This has certainly happened. A culture that has moved beyond Christianity. And so don't think post as after. Think post as opposed, as anti that we do not, the culture does not want to identify itself with its Christian past. It doesn't mean the culture goes back to being a first culture. It doesn't start all over with, with the gods and spirits and appeasing the world. It doesn't go back to that. It's moved to something else. So let me read some, some text from Mark Sayers here. He said, the third culture of the West, the West would be all of Europe, Canada, America, Australia. The third culture of the West is ultimately a post-Judeo-Christian culture, not reverting to a pre-Christian paganism, but rather is a culture bent on disfiguring the second culture. Reif, this is one of the authors of this, his last name, Reif, who was Jewish, noted that the third culture was created by post-Jews and post-Christians who no longer have a grip on the commanding truths. They are intent on deconstructing their former faith and heritage. That's a word you're going to hear a lot nowadays, deconstruction. Therefore, the mode of the third culture is the destruction of all modes. Nothing is solid in the third culture. It is a ghostly world that corrodes anything solid. The third culture is not anarchic as such. Rather, it positions itself as the latest incarnation of the West's mission to re-educate the world. It propagates its own creed, one which believes in no creeds except the creed of self. The third culture is the engine that powers post-Christianity. The ultimate authority in the third culture is the self. That's where we are, right? The self. I define truth. I define my reality. I define what's real or not. That's the, that's the world we're living in. So there's some reactions to this. There's some reactions, a couple of which I think are unhelpful. One is to say, well, we got to go back. We got to go back to the second culture. We got to return to that. And, and how do you return a whole culture to something that's been rejected force power political means and it drives a deep wedge that's the world that we live in with politics and conflict and so we can use political and force things we're going to force these values we're going to force these beliefs we're going to re-inject the christianized worldview and it just creates hostility and a wedge and it uses none of the tools of the gospel the gospel is, doesn't come from a position of power. It comes from a position of service and humility. And so the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. 
But because we long for some of the values of the second culture, there is a draw to that. Like, oh, wasn't it better when our culture supported these things? But using the means of force and power in politics do not advance the gospel. It drives a wedge. Does anybody like laws being forced on them? Do laws change hearts? They don't. And so that, to me, is a wasted effort. If we're going to say we just need to go back to that second culture, there's no going back. That's in the rearview mirror. Here's the other danger. The other danger is that we move into the second culture and the third culture is that the third culture colonizes and absorbs Christians. And so you once had a Christian faith and a commitment to Jesus, and as it's become a hostile culture to it, there is a temptation to, well, let's just let go of this. Let's do a mix. Let's, let's deconstruct everything about faith and throw it all out. And so there's this risk as we move into this third culture, we live in this post-Christian culture, that it's picking people off. Anybody know anybody in that camp? We know that, that the ideals of today have come in conflict with their faith, and so they say, I'm going to let go of my faith, or I'm going to change it. So this is Mark Sayers again. He says, The temptation of this discomfort between Orthodox Christian faith and the civil religion of the third culture is to do what it takes for the pressure to go away. All the believer must do is ease up on the beliefs that grate against contemporary sensibilities. Tweak your view on sexuality to be more embracing of today's mood. Or move from a particularist view of Jesus to a universalist one, and you are warmly embraced into the fold. Thus, for many Christians raised with the ethic of relevance, of proving to the world that Christians can both be believers and carry the contemporary currency of cool, the new pressure presented by an intolerant tolerance proves too much. Some compartmentalize their beliefs into an orthodox, secularist mashup, and others simply disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. That's the tension, right? There's a tension to believe things, to just let go of the biblical sexual ethic and the biblical gender views and the authority of Scripture and the biblical views of marriage and the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way. Just, let's just soften that. Let's take the edges off. Let's do some things to make it less offensive to this culture. And pretty soon you don't have Christianity anymore. And some just say, I don't want to be in constant conflict with our culture. And so you just slip into it. That's, that's the risk we're in fight the culture, to be colonized by the culture, and we don't want to go there. This is why John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that's the temptation, right? I want, that's what he said, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. I can do it. I want it. That's the creed of today. And it's pretty darn tempting, right? Don't we like it your way right away? Companies make a lot of money on that kind of thing. And we're saying, no, we want it to be Jesus' way right away. We, We can't force something back. We don't want to be colonized. So here's what I think is in, in this context, that we want to go all in 
as disciples of Jesus right now. We can't attack the culture. We don't want to be colonized by the culture. We want to go further into the life of Jesus. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning and just have this charging us forward into 2022. This is what's in front of us. So I want us to look in the book of 2 Peter. Peter was writing to Christians in the Roman Empire at the time when it was not Christianized. He calls people he writes to exiles, people that feel like they're in the wrong place. So here we are in 2 Peter, we're going to do verses 1 through 11. 2 Peter 1 through 11. I want to see this idea he presents of going all in, of going further into the life of Jesus as what's in front of us. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about, Peter, one of the twelve, and he's writing near the end of his life. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, so he's writing to believers, by, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So let's go to verse 3 here. Let's look here. Um, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do we think that? That God's power has given us everything we need. Sometimes I think we know it, but here he's, he's reassured we don't, we don't live it out all the time. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is the path through that we're going to live in a culture that's hostile to our faith, that God's power is giving us everything we need to live this life and to stay godly, not to be pulled off. Okay, and it says, through the knowledge of him who has called us. We need to know him more and more and more. He's called us to his own glory and excellence. Not anything that can be offered on this world. His glory, his excellence. He's called us, so he's given us everything we need for life and for staying godly in this life. So verse 4, he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He's promised us he's going to be with us, and he's got a future for us. So he's promised us things, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. How about that? You ever think all these things we do and all these commitments we make, I'm going to pray, I'm going to change this, I'm going to do that, and then you like, it's still me, and I still blow it, and I still have the same problems. And he's like, someday you're going to be fully in the divine nature, but we slowly become more and more into the life of Jesus. So we want to become partakers. We want to live out the divine that he's given to us now, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Isn't it amazing? Thousands of years ago, Peter wrote to us, and like, yeah, that makes sense. We're living in a world that has corruption, that has sinful desire. I want to do it this way because it's me. It's always been that way. Am I going to be God or is God going to be God? Am I going to do what I want or are we going to do what God wants? And here he says, when you've come to Christ, you've actually escaped that corruption. 
You've been made new. You've been redeemed. You've been invited into the family of God. He's given you the right to become children of God. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says he's a pledge. He's the earnest guaranteeing our inheritance. And so he says you have escaped from the corruption. You're not going to follow that path. And you're not going to end up in destruction because he's changed you. And so he's saying that's where I want you to go into. So look at verse 5 here. He says, for this very reason, make every effort do one's best it means to try as hard as possible try as hard as possible that's why i said let's go all in let's go all in a lot of times we say i'll give minimal effort i guess i'll read that verse and maybe i'll pray like no let's let's just flip that script let's go all in let's make every effort To supplement your faith, it means to add, to provide more than what already exists. We don't want to stay at neutral. We want to go forward. We want to go deeper. So to supplement your faith. And then he begins to go through a whole list of things. So the idea is you are where you are today. This is where I am. I've, I've known Jesus. Maybe you're just coming to Jesus. This is where I am. He says, I want you to make every effort. I want you to put some energy to continue to add to increase your faith, to go further than you are. If we just stay neutral, likely we're actually going to go backwards. Likely we're going to actually be in a danger zone. So he says, let's make every effort to go forward, to supplement your faith, your belief, your trust, to add to it virtue. Virtue is moral excellence, outstanding goodness. So we're in a culture that's pulling us the other way, We have our own temptations that are pulling us the other way. He says, no, let's live more and more the godly life, the virtuous life. And he says, to add virtue, add knowledge, understanding. We want to know more and more who God is. So I'll just tell you, here's what I'm doing this year. I've done the the Read Scripture app a few years in a row, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that this year. I'm right now going to read the major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, over and over. I told someone this morning, I might get to summer and burn out. I don't know. But so much of the New Testament is quoted in the major prophets. I just want to know more about God through. So I'm in, working in Jeremiah right now. That's what I'm saying. I want to have knowledge. I want to know who God is. These are important moments in the salvation history story. That's where I'm going to be. So we want to have more knowledge. We want to understand God more. Verse 6, and with knowledge, self-control. That means control over one's desires and actions. That is a hard one, isn't it? They say the person you look at in the mirror every morning is the hardest one to deal with. Right? But that's what, there's this part. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, too. It's the last one. Self-control. We want to improve in some areas. We want to let go of some things. We want to discipline some areas. So let's add to our faith self-control. And with self-control, with steadfastness. Steadfastness is endurance. Bearing up under difficulty. You know, a lot of the hymns pick up on that. Right? Some of some of the, the, the songs of the saints over the years, a lot of the psalms pick up on that too. I think maybe in some of our new music, we need to write a little bit more about endurance because it's going to be hard. 
You know, it's going to be really hard. There's a part when you, you just go, I can't do this anymore, and I can't keep up with this anymore. And some of the saints of old say, you just keep going. You just keep waiting. You just keep trusting. You're going to go through some hard times. Right? Sometimes we, we create an idea that the gospel is, well, you believe in Jesus and it all works out from then on out. Well, it certainly works out in eternity, but it doesn't mean you're not going to go through some more storms. And so there's this idea we're going to add to our faith endurance. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to bear up under. That's where we need each other to encourage each other. But I'm going to keep believing this. I'm going to keep following this. I'm going to keep trusting this. I'm not going to let it go. So he says, add to your self-control steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. That's where we get the word piety. It's not a word we use too much anymore, piety. But it's beliefs and practices that are fitting of God. Like these are the ways I want to think and act that are representative of God, that makes sense, that would be biblically based, that would be representative of a person who's following God. That's godliness. It's going to show up in my personal life, my private life. The way I live and function and work has godliness. So then add godliness with brotherly affection. This is our word for Philadelphia, where that's the English word for this right here. Philadelphia, brotherly love. We want to grow in love for one another. This is where the pandemic's been hard because it's caused separation, and you know I don't even know if there was a word called social distancing anymore, right? I mean, sometimes you're like, I want to social distance from that coworker, right? They're a bit of a close talker or have bad breath. I'm going to create a social distance, but it's been really hard for faith. For brotherly love, it's been fun to bring even just something as simple as the greeting back into our service and just see people talking again and knowing each other again. And I'm hoping we get back to let's have so-and-so over for dinner again and begin to know one another and to love one another. We need each other's help. We're not going to make it in a hostile culture as individuals. We need the support of one another. We need to love one another. We need to encourage one another. So we want to grow in our brotherly or our spiritual family uh, affection. So the love for fellow believers. And finally, we want to add, so we want to have affection and care for one another and to our brotherly affection with love. Where we just say, I want to put your needs in my life, on the table. I want to help you with what's happening in your life. I want to care about you. I want to serve you. So that's, that's a quite a list, right? The idea, it's not exhaustive of everything, but the idea is that faith moves forward. I want you to add to this, and then to this, and then to this. <clears throat> and here he gets into why. In verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because who wants that? Yeah, I'm a believer in Christ, but I'm actually pretty ineffective and unfruitful. Like, no. <laughs> Who wants that at all? I don't want that in any part of my life. Well, he's ineffective and unfruitful. Can't do anything right. I want to be effective for the Lord. Effective for our family. Effective for reaching out. Effective in our faith. I want to be fruitful. I want there to be personal growth and public growth, right? We want to grow. We want to move forward as disciples of Jesus. He says the way you move forward is you continue to grow in your faith and you continue to supplement your faith. You continue to add in your faith so that it's not a big waste of time. That it has meaning and purpose. 
Verse 9 says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he's saying, when you're on these things, you're growing in the Lord. It keeps you from being unfruitful. And it says, if you're not moving forward in the Lord, you forgot the cross. That's kind of what he said. You have forgotten what it is that Jesus did for you. It always comes back to the cross. Our growth in our faith, our growth, growth as disciples of Jesus, we always look back at the cross and go, oh yeah, that's right. Look what he did for me. I want to show you another quote from uh, Mark Sayers. And he's talking about the difference of being sort of free, we do whatever we want, and then our true reality as uh, slaves of Jesus. He said, we are not seekers. He's contrasting the idea that spirituality is completely up to us and we go looking for it and it's all in our court. He says, no, we're not seekers, we're slaves. We're slaves. The churches that do not fade and disappear in the third culture of the West will be the churches that preach, teach, and live out the truth that we are called to live as slaves of Christ. Paul starts all of his letters that way. Paul, he'll oftentimes say, a bondservant of Jesus. So it's a willful slave. It's an indentured servitude. I'm putting myself under him. So we're called to live as slaves of Christ, a church fragrance of selflessness and a culture of selfishness. We are people who give up our autonomy not to unjust rulers or authorities, but to the one true king, the one good king, the king who has taken all of our rebellion, our sin, our injustice upon himself. We lay our authority and autonomy down at the feet of the king with scars. Oof. So he's talking about this idea. A lot of times, and a big word right now is the word freedom. But we want to take our freedom and give it to Jesus. You died for our sins. You are reigning at the right hand of the Father. You are the one we answer to at the end of the day. You inherit heaven and earth. All authority has been given to Jesus. So our our goal isn't to leave free lives unto ourselves. Our goal is to freely give our lives to Jesus. Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live? Who do you want me to serve? How do you want me to reach out? And so we don't want to, in this culture, exchange saying, well, they want freedom of this, but I'm going to do my other freedom and just have alternative competing versions of freedom with maybe a little Jesus smattered in. No, we want to say, I want to be all in with Jesus is the king. Jesus commands me. What do you want me to do? You're the kings. And that's what he was getting at there, Peter, in verse 9. If we're not growing, if we lack these qualities, we're nearsighted, we're blind, we've forgotten that we've been cleansed from our former sins. He says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. He's our master. And so our growth is completely out of thanksgiving and gratitude for the cross. Let's go a little bit further here. Verse 10 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent See these words coming up? Make every effort. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these these qualities, you will never fall. 
That's the thing we're concerned about in the third culture. Being colonized, being hived off, appealing to the flesh, escaping the pressure. So the way that we survive in a hostile culture is go further and deeper into Jesus. And he says, if you have that, if you're growing and loving and serving and enduring and steadfast, all those words we just read, he says, you will never fall. This has like a triple negation on it. I've talked about this before. In English, we can't do double, double negatives. It doesn't work. In, uh, in the original language, Greek, you actually, by adding more negatives, it makes it stronger. So it's, you could render this, you will not ever fall in any way. It's got a triple negation on it. You will never, ever fall at all. You'd re- render it something like that. No way possible. He's sort of stacking up. It's not going to happen. You will not fall at all. That's what he says. So that idea of we're going to live out the front window, we're going to go all in as disciples of Jesus, we don't fall to the culture if that's the way we're going. But if we're not, we've forgotten the cross, we become ineffective, we're at risk of being hived off. Finally, verse 11 says, For in this way... There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have the one thing. What you won't do is you won't fall. And what you will do is have just a huge welcome. You made it. You made it. You served me. Welcome to the kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. You made it. I tell that to people when I visit them. I said it to Grace even two weeks ago. Let's not think about where you're leaving. Let's think about where you're going. Who are you going to see first? What will it be like? How will it feel? (laughs) What will be different in your body? What What will it be like to be before the Lord? What will it be like to not have temptation to sin? That's the final step in the salvation story. We're removed from the penalty of sin that's taken away we remove from the power of sin because the spirit's now working in us and finally we're removed from the presence of sin it's gone it's not it's not there and so this is what we're looking to a rich entrance into the kingdom of the lord and savior so here's what that's that's our my encouragement for us let's go that's in the front window let's go all in as disciples of jesus we can't go backwards Whatever was good behind us, whatever is bad behind us, it's behind us. We can go forward. Let's make every effort. Let's be diligent. Let's add to our faith, individually and collectively. I've been reading a great book with our staff. It's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. He's a pastor down in Portland. It's a book really about how to do spiritual warfare in a positive way. And so here's where he talks about it for a church. He said, here's the crucial idea we need to recapture in our generation. The church is a counterculture. It is, as my friend John Tyson from New York, he's a pastor in New York, City put it, a beautiful resistance to the world and its vision of life of rebellion against God. We want to be a beautiful resistance. Or since the Western, secular world is currently more an anti-culture than a culture, more about tearing down than building up, more about deconstruction than construction, then maybe it's better to say the church is a counter-anti-culture. 
in the language of Anabaptist thought, which is actually the church history tree we come off of, it means rebaptize. In the Anabaptist thought, the church is an alternative society, a group on the margins of the host culture living in an alternative but compelling and beautiful way, a prophetic signpost to kingdom life and a culture of death. What, what do we know that's true? Does life work apart from Christ? Does ejecting God from your personal and public life help or hurt society? We know it's going to not work. We know it's headed for an absolute train wreck. We know these things. Life is hard with the Lord. Throw him out of the picture. Throw him out of your body. Throw him out of our society. Throw him out of our culture. It will hurt. It will be disastrous. It's going to be disastrous. And so as we seek to go further into Jesus as individuals and a collective, we want to be this picture of a beautiful resistance. We're not going the way of the flesh. We're not going the way of deconstruction. We're going further into Jesus. And when people look over and say, why do you have hope? Why are you not despairing? Why are your relationships working? How are you surviving? It's Jesus, right? This is when he says, you are a city on a hill. We want to be the city on a hill. A light, right? You're the salt of the earth. And so we can't be the salt of the earth if we're attacking the culture. And we can't be the salt of the earth if we walk away from faithfulness to Jesus. So we have to stay on track with those things. But if we do that individually and collectively, as the culture gets into more and more trouble, which it will, right? We know it will. Jesus tells us it will. That there's this shining light. What about those people? Why is it different? Why are they functioning? Why do they have peace? How do they get through these tragedies? It's that we're, we're, it's, that's what we want to be. So here's three things Comer says. We want to be a community of deep relational ties in a culture of individualism and isolation. So we need to grow further connected to each other. And this is something I don't really quite have my finger on this, so I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about and I don't. But this whole world of metaverse and virtual reality, I really don't get it. All I know is I like the um, America's Funniest videos when they put the VR on somebody that doesn't know what they're doing and they run into the wall. I find that entertaining. But the whole world of this virtual reality, alternative reality, I think it's our culture saying this around me isn't working. I'm going to create an alternative existence where I can control it and create it and perfect it and beautify it. And we're going, that's individual. It's isolating. It's escapist. It's not real. And I'm not saying don't use Zoom. That's not what I'm getting at. But what I'm talking about is I think our culture is longing for this world's broken Let's create something that isn't broken, but it's not real. And we can say, let me offer you a different vision. The kingdom of God that actually is real and is fixed and doesn't have any of the planetary problems and the relational problems and the death problems. He's actually solved all that. There is an alternative reality. It's called the kingdom of God. And so as we live that out amongst ourselves, the culture that's escaping more individual, more isolated, more digital, which makes me more alone, more depressed. Say, let me tell you the other alternative vision of reality, the kingdom of God. So we live it and we show it. 
So again, I don't totally know about metaverse and virtual reality, but I think it's a longing for the kingdom of God. They just don't know it. We want to be a community of holiness and a culture of hedonism. Let's hang on to the holiness of Jesus. Let's live that out. Let it be seen. Not angry holiness, not Pharisee holiness. We're like, well, what's your problem? What's your problem? Not that. That we're going to be the Jesus holiness where we can live fully for Jesus and then let a prostitute pray over you and wet, cry over your feet. You can remain absolutely holy and still connect to our culture. So that, but we're going to commit to it. The culture is hedonistic, pleasure-seeking. We're seeking Jesus. And then he finally says, a community of order and a culture of chaos. By order, he doesn't mean they have good rules and conduct good meetings. By order, he's getting at the idea that you have an order of life or a rule of life. And he spells that out in the book. But order, like I have daily rhythms of prayer and solitude and fasting. I have weekly rhythms of gathering with other believers. I have a, a Sabbath rhythm. So by order, he means you've put spiritual rhythms and disciplines into your life that center you, that connect you to God in a culture that's spinning into whatever. And it's seen. Like, why are you sound and whole and have peace and hope? Oh, it's because I spend time with the Creator every day. That kind of a thing. So that's what I'm talking about. Let's go all in as disciples of Jesus. This is where the ship, this is where the car, this is what's in the front window of our car. Okay, it's a church, the bus. The bus window, right? More Jesus, more commitment to him, more, that's what things like 21 days of prayer, more personal growth. What I want us to be able to grow to, especially in this year, more interpersonal connection and shine a light in this neighborhood. There's so much around us that is dark and hurting and the light shines brighter. So that's, that's, our, that's our charge. All into Jesus in this culture. I think we're going to see some beautiful stories this year, and I think we're going to hear some transformation, and that's going to be fun to be a part of it. So I'm going to say a little bit more at our annual meeting here in a few minutes, but let me wrap up for today.